This morning we will be considering Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. These are the words of God. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear me will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had bored to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I also will make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water. And putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot. For she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him, from the land of Egypt. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, you would open up this rich text. It seems to have a little of everything going on in it. Help us to understand. Help us to see what you were doing and understand the greatness of your glory and of your providence and how it applies to us that we might be your faithful witnesses today to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in, in the prayer just now, this text seems to have everything in it. It's got laughter and joy. It's got fulfillment and blessing. It's got conflict. It's got sadness. It's got exile. And we're left wondering, how does all this fit together in the providence of God? Well, here's the thing. 
As we look at this in more depth, and we really see what God is doing here, we are going to be amazed, and we are going to give Him glory. Now, the first thing we have is verses 1 through 7. These verses emphasize uh, the joy and the laughter and the gladness of God by showing three characteristics of God. First of all, the faithfulness of God. At this point, we have Sarah, who has endured so much heartache over the course of her life. She's been barren her entire life, and now childbearing years are behind her. So many times she has felt like she has been abandoned. She has felt like God must not love her. She has felt all along. And, and for so long she, she longed to see God's promises. But basically you could see at different points just think it's too good to be true. But now she sees God's promises fulfilled. Not kind of, sort of. But exactly as he had spoken. And that's what's emphasized in the text. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the set time of which God had spoken. Exactly as God had said he now has fulfilled. The second thing emphasized in these verses is the personalness of God. God doesn't wave a magic wand from afar, nor does He even send an angel. He personally visits Sarah and gives her the power to conceive. The God she thought had forgotten her, who abandoned her, who didn't love her, personally visits Sarah and brings about this great fulfillment. And in fact, God's personal visitation of Sarah here, giving her the power miraculously to conceive, will foreshadow another personal visit that God will make to the Virgin Mary almost 2,000 years in the future with the incarnation of Christ. And I think that's one thing we need to keep in mind when we're reading these verses and considering them. They lived before the coming of Christ as far as we live after the coming of Christ. Almost. Almost 2,000 years before Christ is when these events are happening. But 2,000 years later, Virgin Mary will be told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The third thing about God that is emphasized in these verses is the laughter and joy of God. Laughter has been one of the main themes throughout God's dealings with Abraham and Sarah, and we see it now, and we're going to see it even more later in the text. Remember in chapter 17... When God specified to Abraham, this is after the birth of Ishmael, he specified to Abraham that no, Sarah is going to bear for you the promised son, and I will enable her to bear. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. It's not laughter of unbelief, but it is laughter of incredulity. It just seems too good to be true at that point, too much to believe. And then in the next chapter, chapter 18, 
Sarah does the same thing. When she hears God reiterate the promise, this time next year I will come and Sarah will bear you a son. She laughs within herself the same kind of laughter. It's a laughter that's too much to believe. It's too good to believe. It's a laughter of incredulity. And so when Abraham laughs that kind of laugh, God says, and here's what you're going to name him, Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. God says, you will name this son, he laughs. And we're left wondering, who laughs? Is it Abraham who's going to laugh? Is it who is laughing? Is it the child who's going to laugh? Well, what we're going to see really is it's God who is going to laugh. And he is going to teach Abraham and Sarah how to laugh, how to really laugh, and why. So now with the birth of Isaac, we see Sarah laughing in pure joy. God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the laughter of pure joy. It's not the empty laughter of fools talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not even a kind of wry laughter like Abraham and Sarah laughed earlier where they want to believe but find it kind of beyond them to fully believe. It seems too much. This is a laughter of pure joy. Psalm 126 talks about it. God's people here are being brought back from captivity. And it says, we were like those who dream. It's like it doesn't seem real because this is too good to be true. It doesn't seem real. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. And this is a form of witness. This is part of the witness of God's people to the nations. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. This is the laughter of the joy of the Lord. Jesus was very concerned with joy. He told the disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, all these things that I have spoken to you is so that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be made full. That you come to see what joy really is. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us, Matthew 8, 11, he gives us a little glimpse of the picture of the culminated kingdom. Don't have a lot of detail. He just says that we will sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll sit at a table, feasting, eating, rejoicing together. Well, I would submit to you that one other thing we're going to be doing in the culminated kingdom is laughing with Sarah. So our text opens with this laughter and joy and the fulfillment of God's promises. But in verses 9 through 16, suddenly, without warning, it shifts to conflict, drama, sadness, exile. And when we first read this, it's easy to think at first glance that the culprit causing the conflict and the trouble here is Sarah. But it's not. It's Ishmael. If Sarah was the one causing the conflict here because she's 
jealous, she's resentful toward Ishmael and his mother Hagar. Then the conflict would have started at Isaac's birth, or perhaps even when Sarah first realized she was pregnant. But it didn't. The conflict did not start until Isaac was weaned, and in that day, weaning happened at about age three. So for three years after Isaac's birth, there has been no trouble. There has been no conflict. Sarah has manifested no problem with Ishmael and his mother being part of the covenant and part of the clan. There is no problem until Isaac is three years old and Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. That's literally what the Hebrew word for scoffing in verse 9 means. Laughing. Here's that laughter theme again. We have all these different forms of laughter and it's about what kind of laughter are you laughing? Why are you laughing? From what motive are you laughing? From what heart are you laughing? To what purpose are you laughing? That's the question. And what we're learning is that laughter can be good or bad. It can be full or empty depending on where the laughter is coming from and what motivates it. Here, Sarah correctly discerns that Ishmael's laughter is not motivated by the joy of the Lord. He is not sharing laughter with Sarah because God has kept his promises and miraculously enabled her to bear the son of promise. No, Ishmael's laughter is motivated by a desire to deny Isaac's right as the heir of the covenant according to God's promise and instead to assert Ishmael's own claim to be the heir as Abraham's firstborn son, which according to the normal ancient rules of inheritance would have applied. But that's not what the covenant is about. That's not what the promises are about. And that's not who Isaac, in his miraculous birth pursuant to the promise of God, is picturing. This is about something Else. This is why Paul in Galatians 4.29 says by the Holy Spirit that Ishmael's laughter was a form of persecution toward Isaac. He says that Isaac was a child of promise, which he was. His birth was promised ahead of time. He was born to a woman who, to whom it was impossible for her to bear. She was enabled miraculously by God to bear And he points out that Isaac was a child of promise, but he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, in other words, he was born like all of us. He was born in the normal human way. It was not a miraculous birth. He persecuted the child of promise, says Paul. And so in um, Paul's word for persecution there, interestingly, It means to impel or to expel. Sometimes in the movies you'll see somebody like a military guard or a person marching a prisoner. And they're marching them along and they'll stick their rifle in their back to make them go faster. They're impelling them. Okay, that's one of the meanings of this word persecute. But it also means to expel. In other words, to march somebody out, to push somebody out. 
And that is what we see is what Ishmael has in mind there. He is going to push Isaac out in terms of being the heir and the heir of the covenant because Ishmael wants to assert his own claim. So you see, Ishmael is initiating the contact, conflict, and what it is really about is what are the promises and the covenant and the covenant sign of circumcision really about? What are they about? Are they simply about being blessed with a bunch of kids and descendants and some physical land? Or are they about much, much more than that? Are they really about the one whom Isaac pictures, the ultimate miraculously born son of promise, the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation, God with us, the one who will come and deliver a multitude whom no one can number, who will be born of the Spirit, and he will deliver them from Satan's sin and death and bring them into eternal life and into the laughter of God. What this whole passage is saying is that about this one to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the promises are really about. That's what the covenant is really about. That's what circumcision is really about. That is the faith that these parents are to bring up their children in. Not to, but in. So you see, God has already made all of this perfectly clear. In chapter 17, verse 15, God says to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, verse 16, I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, Abraham is saying, God, let Ishmael be the promised one. Let Ishmael be the heir of the covenant. He is my son. He's been with me for over 13 years now. That's how old Ishmael is, uh, 13 or 14, when Isaac is born. And so he's been with his father for 13 or 14 years now. He was circumcised the same day as his father Abraham when God first gave circumcision, standing right next to his father. Abraham loves his son Ishmael. He's saying, God, let Ishmael be the one. And God is very adamant. He says, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name. He laughs. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants. Descendants is not a good translation. In fact, it's not a translation at all. It's an interpretation because the Hebrew word is in the singular, not the plural. I will make my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed, singular. Jesus Christ. Moreover, when we get to verse 22, we're going to see Isaac picture the sacrifice. I mean, when we get to chapter 22 in Genesis, we're going to see Isaac further picture the Lord Jesus Christ by picturing his sacrificial death and his resurrection. Hebrews 11 summarizes Genesis chapter 22. By faith. 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. God is going to call Abraham to offer up Isaac, the promised son, on the altar as a worship offering to the Lord. And when Abraham is carrying that out and is about to actually uh, kill his son in sacrificial death, God stays his hand, provides a ram as a substitute, and gives his son back to Abraham. All of this is a picture of the sacrificial death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the point here is not that, oh, I just like Isaac better. It's not that, oh, Abraham just loves one son more than the other. That has nothing to do with it. It has to do with the fact that in the providence of God, Isaac is a miraculous, promised picture of the Lord Jesus Christ both in his birth and in his sacrificial death and resurrection. It's God continually saying, this is not a normal covenant. This is about what I am going to do when I bring the ultimate game changer into the world through the incarnation, by the power of the Spirit, through a woman who cannot bear a child because she does not have a husband. She's a virgin. That's what this is all about. So the promises in the covenant have always been about Christ and those who are united to him by faith. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. Who is Christ? Look at verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Jesus Christ is the only one who is the seed of his own right. The rest of us become the seed in union with Christ by faith. Christ is the only one in all of history who inherits the promises of God to Abraham on down in his own right. That is, by virtue of his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead, and his exaltation to the right hand of God. Anyone else in history who would inherit the promises must do so in one way only. That is by sharing in Christ's inheritance, which you do by being united with him, which is by faith. That's the point that God is trying to make over and over and over. We're going to see it over and over again as we go through Genesis. Throughout the Old Testament, he keeps hammering the same point. Why? Because it is so easy for sinners to miss it. We see Ishmael missing it even in our text. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 26. You were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Look at Galatians 3 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. God said that to Abraham from the very beginning when he called him in Genesis chapter 12. So when God said to Abraham from the very beginning, And you all the nations shall be blessed, what was he talking about? The gospel. Through Jesus Christ to the nations. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, in order to nurture this one true faith in the promised seed who was to come, who is not going to be coming for almost 2,000 years, how is God going to teach their faith? How is he going to instruct their faith? How is he going to assure their faith? How is he going to nurture and build up and strengthen their faith? Well, we see he's going to give them his word. He's going to speak to them through the prophets. But one of the things he's going to do over and over and over is what he's doing through Isaac. And that is cause the birth of some man who in some aspect of their life is going to be a living picture of one or more aspects of the person and or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that with Isaac. As we go forward in Genesis, we're going to see that Isaac is going to have to take that mantle that he is wearing as the type of Christ. That's not something that he's going to have by virtue of right. He's going to have to pass that baton on to another. He's going to have to pass it on to his son, Jacob, who will be another son of promise. God saying ahead of his birth that the older of the twins, Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. You see how God keeps subverting all the normal rules of human inheritance because he's trying to say it over and over and over as loudly as he can. It's not about that. It's about what I'm doing. And what I'm going to do through Christ. And I'm going to give you these living pictures. Jacob is going to have to pass that baton to his son, Joseph. Who like Christ will be betrayed by his brothers. Will be thrown into a pit as a picture of death. Will be sold into the hands of unbelievers. And then will end up though being exalted to the king's right hand. So that if Jacob and his other sons don't come and pay homage to Joseph, they're going to starve in the famine. Joseph will pass the baton on to Moses, who, like Jesus, will be preserved at birth from Pharaoh's slaughter of the baby boys. Jesus, on the other hand, will be preserved from Herod's slaughter of the baby boys around Bethlehem. And Moses will grow up to be the redeemer and deliverer of God's people. And the prophet with whom God speaks face to face. All of those are pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the lives of all of these types of Christ, there will be something that indicates to the people at that time, this is a picture, but this is not the actual one. 
the actual one is still to come. And we will see that Moses, Moses will not be able to enter the promised land. He will have to pass the baton to Joshua. And remember, Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua was Jesus' Hebrew name. Joshua will lead the people to victory in conquest over the seven nations of Canaan, all of whom were stronger and more numerous than Israel, which is a picture of Christ's disciples' ultimate conquest over all the nations by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel, pursuant to the Great Commission. The baton will be passed to David, who is the shepherd boy, the good shepherd, who becomes the shepherd king of Israel, who is the man after God's own heart, who by the Spirit authors a majority of the Psalms, which still today are our devotional and prayer guide. David, though, he's not the actual one. The little incident with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah makes that clear. He's not the actual one. He's pointing to one to come. David will have to pass the baton to his son Solomon, who will be the wisest man on earth, probably the wealthiest as well, to whom all the kings and queens from all around come to pay him homage. That is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ when the kingdom fills the earth and the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And on it goes. You see, the point for God's people at the time was to see Christ through the lens of these various types and then to believe, to believe, and thus share in Christ's inheritance. Hebrews 11 verse 13 talks about this. These all died in faith. Now, who is he talking about? Well, by name, the ones, the examples he's given thus far are Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. In other words, he's talking about all of these believers who lived before the coming of Christ. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar. And a lot of that is looking at the various seed types and through them onto Christ. And so they were assured of the promises. They embraced the promises and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's not talking about the way we often take it now, which means he's going to lead them in a great Dunkirk evacuation, that Jesus is running a salvage operation. He's going to save what little he can, and then we're going to Dunkirk our way out of here. And so history is going to be a defeat or at least a stalemate between Satan and, and Christ. But Jesus is going to win in heaven. History is going to be a stalemate, but Jesus is going to win in eternity. No, what they're saying is they realize the fact that the kingdom goes from heaven to earth and it is by the power of heaven that it will be brought here. Jesus wins. He wins in history and he wins in eternity. He wins on the earth and he wins in heaven. Jesus wins, period. He's going to restore every single one of God's original glorious intentions. So coming back to Ishmael, believing is what he failed to do. 
which meant he was failing to walk in the footsteps of his father Abraham's faith. Compare the two of them. Abraham had the promises. Ishmael had the promises. Abraham had the covenant. Ishmael had the covenant. Abraham had circumcision. Ishmael had circumcision. Same day, first day it was given, standing side by side. So far, they are identically in the same position. What is the only difference between Abraham and Ishmael? Abraham believed. And Ishmael did not. And so because he did not believe, he was missing what the promises and the covenant and circumcision were all about. He's missing the whole thing because he does not believe. Romans 4 makes this clear. Romans 4, 9. Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Who is Abraham the father of? All who believe. Circumcised or not? Who is Abraham not the father of, spiritually speaking? Anyone who doesn't believe. Circumcised or not? Because the covenant and the promises and the circumcision and all of it, all the time, the whole time, it's about Christ. It's never been about anything else. It's about faith in Him. It's about giving up what you think is yours in your own right so that you can inherit what is Christ in union with Him by faith. Remember Galatians 3, 7, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So that was the critical thing that Ishmael failed to do, was to believe And therefore, when you take faith away for something that's intended to faith, it falls apart. It becomes twisted. It becomes perverted. It is turned into a monstrosity. God gives it all as a blessing. Promises, covenant, circumcision, all a blessing to cultivate the faith. Take the faith away. It is all perverted into twisted metal and a a monstrosity. And yet, it's important that we see as we come to the end of our passage, verses 13 through 21, that faith and repentance are still open to Ishmael and his mother Hagar. That's what verses 13 through 21 are about. When we get to chapter 25 and Abraham dies, Ishmael is going to be standing there with Isaac burying their father. It's important that we see that the expulsion of Ishmael and his mother Hagar is not reprobation or eternal damnation. Like I said, repentance and faith are still open to them because we notice, we see God hears the voice of the lad. Notice, and it's very specific. It doesn't say he hears the voice of Hagar who is lifting her voice and weeping, said, he hears the voice of the lad. 
And the angel of the Lord is sent to appear to Hagar. And he says, God has heard the voice of the lad. God says he's going to to bless him. God told this to Abraham when Abraham initially was upset, thinking that this is about jealousy from, from Sarah to Hagar. God says, no, it's not what this is about. Listen to your wife, Sarah, because don't you worry about Hagar and Ishmael. I am going to be with it. This is not about damnation here. We're not told whether Ishmael comes to faith. The fact that he's there at his father's funeral, standing next to Isaac, that is a good sign. We don't know. We don't know the answer to that. But even if Ishmael does come to faith and repentance, he's not going to be brought back into the covenant and become heir according to the covenant because God is making here a critical theological point which is that this is not about any form of normal human inheritance. This is about passing on the faith by which we give up everything we think is ours in our own right so that we can inherit what Christ has in union with Him. In conclusion, in application, I want you to realize that we are all Ishmael. We are all Ishmael. Jesus Christ is the only person in all of history who inherits the promises of God in His own right. The rest of us are exactly in the same position as Ishmael. What are we going to do? Are we going to try to hold on to what we think is ours in our own right? Or are we going to give that up so that we might share in Christ's inheritance by faith? This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, whoever desires to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. What did Paul say? What things were gained to me Even the things that he thought were gained to him by virtue of the fact that he was a physical Israelite, he had the blood of Abraham flowing in his veins, and he was circumcised. Even those things that he thought he gained by that, just by having them. He said, all of that I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. I count all things to be lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. What Paul is saying in so many words is, I am Ishmael, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.